0: Hello
1: and welcome to Access Chat. I'm really pleased that we're joined today by Heather Dowdy, been a fan of Heather's for quite some time. Heather is, is working at Microsoft in the field of AI for good. So Heather, it's it's a real pleasure to have you here today. We've had some conversations before around the importance of some of the topics that we need to consider for AI when we're talking about inclusion, but please tell us about you your role and how you came to be working in the field of of accessibility and inclusion
2: thanks Neil thank you access chat for having me i'm really excited for this conversation because i'm excited to talk to our community there's so much to really talk about when you think about the future of technology and quite honestly i come to this work personally and professionally an ally So I'm a quota child of deaf adults. I began signing sign language at six months old and I was raised by young black deaf parents on the South side of Chicago. So lots of intersections there. We had all types of technology in our home growing up that helped my parents hear and communicate with others. And I honestly fell in love with what technology could do which is open up doors, provide access. And I went to school for engineering and was able to, to fall in love with a career and access technology. I've been in mobile accessibility, web accessibility, and now AI accessibility.
1: Thank you. And and, and I think it's it's really important that that we accept the, the contribution of allies and and, and, and families and, and that lived experience of working with disabilities from both sides as part of our community um because because sometimes there is the, the 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 tendency to focus on you know the the disability community themselves rather than the the wider ecosystems that we all live in and and then let's face it some of us start off as allies and end up on the other side in the community too so right. um and in fact if we live long enough pretty much all of us will so so um you know here at Access Jet, we're we're definitely you know broad church we want to welcome everyone so so it's 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 great to hear about, a bit about your background so um i also spent time in mobile so i'm still fascinated by <laughs> right um although right. <laughs> these days the change is more incremental and it's not, not quite so revolutionary but there's still the the conduit if you like for a lot of the stuff that's happening in ai actually so a lot of the stuff that ai is powering we're experiencing through these things so so yeah tell tell us a bit about what you're doing in in the ai programs that you're you're, you're working on and and how that's impacting the community.
2: Or... I also wanna comment on what you just said about being an ally. It's so true. We need allies in the accessibility community. I like to think that I have a certain privilege and privilege isn't necessarily inherently a negative word. It's how you use your privilege. And so having one foot in the deaf world and one foot in the hearing world allows me to observe a lot <laughs> and it allows me to comment on a lot. And the reason why I bring that up is because you know it's taken some time to realize that that it stuck with me throughout my career. I don't get to leave that experience at the door just because I'm talking about a new technology. It stuck with me in mobile when we were looking at hearing aid compatibility to know this is a big game changer. You know, and web accessibility is stuck with me in realizing wow, we get so much information on the internet. How do we make sure that it's accessible to everyone? And now with AI technology it's just the newest frontier. So I like to try to stay on the latest frontier when it comes to accessibility. And for me and looking at AI, you're right. It's a new technology, but the way we approach it is very much the same as any other technology as mobile and web. And it is to really think about who's at the table, who's participating in designing that technology, who is participating when it comes to making sure that the community understands the impacts, both positive and negative of a new technology. And so what I love about AI is because it's seen As a disruptor. And quite honestly, I think we need a little bit of that. There are some things, including the unemployment rate in the disability community, that hasn't changed in 30 years in the US since we started counting it. You know, a 50% unemployment rate for 30 years, uh, we got to do something different. And so, really, the as a community, we need not be afraid of approaching a new technology like AI, just like as we've done with others.
1: Excellent, and and, and I think that's 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 so true. Um, and those figures are, you know, although I know them are shocking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that that fifty percent unemployment is is not just shocking, but it's unacceptable.
2: And that was before COVID. And so during the COVID pandemic, we see that uh, people with disabilities are at the forefront of job losses. So when we think about a really inclusive recovery, what is it going to take? We need to leapfrog. I'm like, let's go, let's leapfrog, uh, and not necessarily try to play catch up.
3: And Heather, you, I, I, I was listening to your interview the other day um, on Verizon Media with Margot Jaffe, who I'm a, I like you, I'm a big fan of her work, and you had talked a little bit, and I also am very blessed to have had you on my show, Human Potential at Work. And where you did talk, you talked about some of the same themes, but I know you were discouraged by a professor to be an engineer because of the color of your skin. So I do think it's very interesting and maybe because you were a woman, I don't know, but Mm -hmm. I, I think the ally, the accomplice conversation, the intersectionality conversations are just so powerful. And so I love that you... Are representing our community, representing women, representing African Americans and people that are brown and black. But why is it so important that all of these voices and intersections be considered in these topics? And do you believe that it, that that is really happening? Wow! Well,
2: great question, Deborah. I. I love the fact that I can explain parts of my identity through the word intersection. But before there, I knew that word, it was just my lived experience. It was who I am. And quite honestly, uh, I did have to show up. In, in places and try to cover certain parts or minimize other parts. And that is not working. That is not working to, to serve the community. Um, that's not working for me every day. And so a lot of my um, Dealing or coming to terms with that really did happen with getting my engineering degree. When I was told by a a white woman who was a a Dean of the college that I would never get my engineering degree from there. I had just finished taking her class um, in engineering and I was declaring my major and she took one look at me and just was like, you're better off majoring in Caribbean studies just by one look at me. Um, And so Of course, that really pissed me off. And so I went to the minority engineering department and told them what she said. And I was telling this to uh, a black man that was a dean there. And he looked at me and said, well, who told you you're going to be an engineer anyway? So, you know, to get it from both ends was like, wow, I will show you. But for me, it really grounded me in why I wanted to do this. I knew that I was serving people that looked like my parents. I knew that I had a bigger why, and that really did sustain me. But the reason why that story and stories of intersectional identities are important is because it allows us to see where we could be harming people and where we could be leaving people. Intersectionality shows up in a lot of places. It really does inform um, how I also perceive people with disabilities. does allow me to say wow that could be one part of their identity but there is so much more there can we really you know get to know the whole person
1: yeah and 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 i'm obviously very disappointed but not shocked by right. your experience um i've come from a different position I come from a position of privilege in many ways I come from a middle class background I, I'm white anglo-saxon at the same time I was also told not to do things not to expect things and that I was a lazier dilettante and why not why not you know why was I applying to Oxford uh, so I think that actually the reason we're sat here today is because we were told that we couldn't do stuff as much. Yeah. As that we can uh, that we can do stuff. What I hope is that the, the message that we all give to people is that don't take no for an answer. If you really believe that you want to do something follow your passion, um, because you can do it, because you're the one that determines whether or not you can't. Now there are systemic barriers, and those barriers are different for different social groups, and 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 so. You know, it's like running the 100 meters and I get a 60 meter head start on you because of where I was born and the color of my skin. But it doesn't mean that you can't complete the 100 meters. What I'd like to do is make sure that we all start from the same place.
0: Neil, uh, but on on that topic, and if if we go back to some of the live stories of some of our guests... Yeah. Uh, in some cases, the release, the uh, resilience was on the parents' side. If, yeah. if it wasn't for the parents to pursue, say, "I don't accept a no as an answer," no, their their children wouldn't have a chance uh, of achieving what they were able to achieve and be who they are today.
2: Uh, That's a really great point, Antonio. And I would also add that in my experience, I think about the parents of uh, children and students with disabilities of color from marginalized communities where these parents aren't necessarily privy to understanding what access options there are. And so then you even have a disparity there amongst, okay, which parents understand what resources are available to them because they aren't available to everyone at the same level as they should be. And to me, that really does drive me, uh, particularly in one of my passions in education, um, that education to employment pipeline. There's so many things there, but if we don't really think about intersectionality or sit with people's stories, we really won't be doing a service to our entire community. I think for so long uh, as a disability community, we thought, well, if we talk about race, that kind of detracts from disability, or if we focus on this one area, or maybe we should just focus on certain um, uh, visible disabilities. and And that hasn't gotten us as far as we would like, and we can no longer wait until we get to that particular mountaintop to say everybody else should be included as well.
1: Uh, Yeah, So Deborah is on mute. I'm not sure why um were you no, I to- just
3: on mute because it's i totally agree with what she's saying and yeah. you know there's so many things we've got to figure out when it comes to society period but for a specifically this is a huge undertaking that we're doing as society and we must have voices like heather in it we must and we must have people like heather and all of the rest of us fighting for others to come in but there's so many i know that before we started the show antonio had dropped a link in the uh, our little chat box talking about some of these issues and even last night heather we were teasing you because you look so beautiful today um but um and you were talking about and you were talking about what you were um looking at last night that actually kept you awake so there's so many issues that you know in some ways they 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 seem like the same issues it's all about leaving parents out leaving individuals out leaving people out but i know that as a parent, when I was raising my daughter with Down syndrome, there was so much that I didn't have any information. I didn't know where to go. And, and then we were trying to deal with a very complicated IEP system, inter uh, individual education program, for example, here in the States. And I felt so sorry for some of my peers that didn't have the same communication skills I had. They didn't have the, the almost like you're saying, what are you going to do? Plus also, I'm a white woman, so I have a little bit more privilege when it comes to the teachers and influence. Sadly, so it's like the societal barriers are so complicated and so entrenched. I, I mean, it shocks me. It shocks and saddens me that a white woman told you you could not be an engineer. It saddens me that a black man didn't stand with you. So two mm-hmm. of your genders. I mean, your yeah. gender. Two of your peers said you can't do it thank goodness you're strong enough and say oh well let me tell you watch me do it and so I'm stubborn like that too so is Neil Neil Neil's so stubborn so is Anthony you go ahead and tell me I can't do it and then get out of my way because watch me do it watch me do it but but it's not fair it's 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 not good for society there's so many reasons why what we're doing to people because what if you didn't Heather what if you didn't have the confidence to say Oh yeah. Watch me. But then we would have lost something very valuable. You would have lost. Your family would have lost society loses. So it's chilling what we're doing. And, and the problem seems so big and overwhelming. Sometimes I am sure a lot of us feel like, I don't even know where to begin. These problems are just too big.
2: Oh my goodness. I mean, talking about the education to employment pipeline, particularly um, I'm like, what can we do to really make sure that we fill that pipeline, that we really get students with disabilities jobs? But even in that, and talking about some of the systemic barriers, you know, did you know that over 33% of uh, the students that actually fill the school to prison pipeline are black students with disabilities? So you have that intersection of race and disability there. And you have to really need, we really do have to ask the question, well, why is that? What's happening? You know, How is disability being perceived? Do we understand enough about the intersection um, of race and disability? And, and I would also challenge all of us uh, to think that these issues impact us personally. <laughs> When I don't hear your story, you know I miss out on the goodness of you and all that you bring and and how we connect and so instead of just thinking about it as a problem over there, it is a problem that affects us as a community
1: yeah uh, I, I see Deborah put in the chat sixty percent of your inmate, of us inmates and the us has a, the largest prison population per capita in the world uh, are, are, are people with disabilities. Uh, And and in the UK, I think the stats are something like 40% of all people in prison are people with uh, learning disability uh, or dyslexia, you know, and uh, I I think that the the way that the education system is set up and is so inflexible and so structured to, to going down a certain path makes it very easy for people that aren't meeting a certain neurotype or or a racial type or a you know from a socio-economic background to, to to quickly fall through the gaps and we not only do we miss out their potential but we we go further than that we block it and then we and then we take we we criminalize them through through all sorts of things and 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 i think that there are some people doing really interesting work in the criminal justice System to try and address that. We've we've obviously had Judge Wren on Access Chat a couple of times. Big fan of Judge Wren, but but I, I'm also um, aware of of the work of Project 507 in in the UK, which Whitney Isles, who I know from a, another thing I do, runs and and she looks at the intersection of trauma and ethnicity in in social justice. Uh, and, and that's a whole nother fa- fascinating area. Um, so um, be- because trauma informs behaviour, informs how people interact with the authorities, and, and and that then causes all sorts of chain reactions to happen. So if you're conditioned because of the social trauma, and trauma can be inherited, because you're from a uh, you know different socioeconomic groups, then you're much more likely to react to authority in a different way, and they're going to assume guilt and, and and all of these things then impact on people. and they impact on statistics. So statistically, we have all of these things, and those feed into the data that we're feeding into the AI that is now making decisions about our lives.:
2: Yes. Wow. If I can amplify what you said, yes. it's more than we missed out. We're harming people. Yes. yes. And if I could also amplify what you said in terms of trauma, um, that's an area that we our team was looking at very recently. We published a report on mental health. Uh, societal bias in the Black communities and AI and just the potential there. And a lot of what we found out really did have to tie to just racial trauma. And so can we understand mental health conditions through the the intersectional identity lens of race? Could there be things there that inform us? And, And again, that goes to why language matters, because it's like, oh, now you're talking about mental health. The number one disability in the world, that's where it fits into the disability conversation. So I just love everything that you said there, Neil.
1: Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, I, I, I'm i immediately jumping to pinging you an email introduction to Whitney. Uh, we, speak. we do
2: that every time we talk, right? We're yeah. like, where do we want to go? And then we get off on this whole thread because there's so much here, there's so much yeah, to talk really
1: about. Yeah. Uh, and I and I and I think that, that 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 leads on to the next thing that I'm really interested in. Um, and I seem to be going into soft, really soft focus. I know I've not got my glasses on, but I'm really soft focused today. It's like someone's smeared Vaseline on the lens, which is a good thing for all of you folks watching. Um, it, it's thinking about if we've got these historical datasets that that contain. The, the innate biases of society that then create harm. How do we address that when, and at scale, um, when you can't necessarily go and, and, and suddenly just drag in 3,000 people to start addressing those data sets? So, for example, you, you were talking, I think before we started, we were talking about, uh, you know, camera recognition technology right and, and some of the challenges of that, so if most of the data of people doing what are considered normal day to day things are you know white cishet males, and we need picture, you know we need pictures of of people of different ethnicities of different backgrounds and everything else, can we use things like generative adversarial networks to start? And I know there are experiments going on to try and do this, to start building up images and data sets that are much more diverse. And do you think that that's a a valid approach?
2: Inclusive data sets that are representative of people with disabilities and the lived experience is crucial because you mentioned that AI runs on data. That is like the one point that I tend to land with AI. I also land uh, why we want to use AI. We don't necessarily need a, a hammer where it's AI everything, but really think about why we're using the technology. And at its core, AI is technology that processes lots of data, whether images or audio, and allows us to make decisions. It shouldn't replace humans. It should complement our decision making. And so if we really think about that framework, we really have to think about, okay, uh, some of the design justice principles when it comes to developing AI responsibly who is harmed, who benefits and who's participating because that also lets you know who's being excluded. As we say in the community, if you're not included, you're excluded. Um, And so those design justice principles are are a lens that can be applied to everything. And when it comes to lots of technology, particularly in in focus on AI technology, it's important that we do have a balance of privacy and transparency when collecting data. Because quite honestly, uh, our community can be a little bit fearful. Well, what do you need that data for? And is it going to trace back to me specifically as a person living with a disability? But what I want to counter with that is that we can be transparent on how the data is being used and how it's collected, but I have to land that we have to collect more inclusive data sets. We need the community that already has the inherent trust to be able to collect those data sets because that is what's going to help uh, voice assistants, for instance, recognize impacted speech, Uh, people living with cerebral palsy, for example. We need more data. We need those models trained on inclusive data sets for sure.
3: Heather, I know know that Antonio has a question, but I also, I was tracking you know, what was happening with TikTok in the United States and the politics and stuff. But one, I, I remember when Microsoft said they were going to buy the American version of TikTok, I was just sort of surprised as an individual. And I was thinking, I wonder why Microsoft wants TikTok. But then I read this very interesting article about it. And they said the reason why, micro, and I don't know what happened if Microsoft did buy it, but the reason why Microsoft was intrigued with TikTok was because of all those data sets out there. And that just, that, I just was fascinated by, and because I thought, well, because we are telling TikTok who we are by all those cute little things we're doing, right? So I I was just so fascinated, and I didn't know if you wanted to comment, and I know once again, Antonio also has a question, but I wanted to just throw that out real quick because it seemed timely to where you were in the conversation,
2: TikTok was addictive. I had to I had to pause it because I like learning and it's a way to just really get these really nice tidbits in one to two minutes. And it's really engaging. I have to say that for a lot of reasons. But I do think that we have to get creative um, about where we get data sets from um, because we need scale, which is something Neil mentioned. When you think about voice recognition that's been trained on billions of data points and you compare that to perhaps uh, you know voice recognition for people with impacted speech like I said or even sign language you know we're talking about much smaller data sets and the more data that we train AI on the more accurate and confident it is, you know, and so it's, it's just important for us to get creative at how we do it at scale. But I don't think that that should paralyze us as a community from starting to figure out how we can collect data sets that are inclusive today.
0: Now, following on, on that conversation of, of uh, datasets, we, we've seen uh, startups trying to come into this space to, to, make, uh, trying to, to make AI more robust and more reliable. But even so, we are talking about uh, systems. I, I can tell you a story. When I was studying sociology, uh, there was a, a program very well known at the time called SPSS. Uh, so we were using that for analyst, for uh, for analytics, and to graphics, and to do a lot of research in relation to the data that we were collecting. But like, but sometimes when we were uh, at university, we, we had deadlines, and we have to conduct service to different groups and, and institutions. And I have cases in my colleagues where people were on a rush to complete a task or to deliver a certain number of service, where they end up filling them the service themselves in behalf of other people because they needed to provide some uh, details and some information to the teacher. And then they were feeding the technology, in this case, the analytic tool SPSS, with that data. So there was nothing wrong with the tool itself. The method and the approach—that's where the problem was. Okay, so I feel that you know we are building all these uh, solutions. We are using you know engineers developing systems, but the root cause is a little bit different. Sometimes it's not even relate with the technology itself. So, uh, and knowing as well that sometimes. Some of these systems are delivered by people from a computer science background who uh, uh, are focused on targets on. Oh, I, I really need to deliver something. I need to be productive. How can we make sure that, you know, the other com- components that are somehow in what I call uh, uh, area of uh, where computer engineers are not scalable, uh, knowledgeable in terms of uh, the social aspects of it? How can we fill this knowledge gap that exists here in order to to avoid mistakes?
2: Great question, Antonio. And a lot of that is, again, who's at the table? Who's participating? And that's why I'm so passionate about education because we need more people with disabilities who are entering into data science fields and other fields that leverage AI to be at the table to really make sure uh, that we have and deliver an inclusive experience. And I will also say what I'm encouraged by when I look at AI and and through my experience in the field is that there is room for inclusive teams. Um, It's not just computer scientists and data scientists at the table, but sometimes we have linguists at the table and psychologists at the table. And I love that type of diversity of thought, because, uh, you know, sometimes that means that, hey, you're going to slow down a little bit naturally, because everyone is not thinking homogeneously, um, which is not a negative thing, but you're going to have a better experience and outcome as a result. But again, we really do need more people with disabilities in this field.
3: Yes,
1: great. So, uh, I mean, you just mentioned about um, homogeneity, and, and, and that is something that AI tends to focus on. It's looking for commonalities, and yet diversity is the opposite. So, yeah. how do we how do we approach uh, using AI and creating AI? That can recognise the benefits of stuff at the edge, because what it tends to do is filter out and, and, and look for the middle ground. Right. And, and actually, we're we're at the extremes quite often. And some of the most beneficial things come from understanding the extremes, because when you include the the, the edges, you're building for everyone and for the centre. But there's a fund. How do we fundamentally redesign? our approach to AI? That's a big question. I'm sorry for
2: that. Yeah, I, you took the words out of my mouth, right? You, you gave me the question and then you labeled it a big question. I'm not mad at you, Neil. It is a big question. And one of my favorite questions because it's what we what we call balancing intelligence you know based on uh, history with the future with discovering something new so you're right at its core fundamentally AI is modeling based on historical data but history hasn't always served marginalized communities, including people with disabilities well. So do we really wanna repeat history by modeling based on historical data? And the answer is, it really depends. And that's why we really have to remember that using AI technologies is supposed to complement our decision-making. So if we can learn insights about root causes and perhaps where, for instance, people with disabilities get stuck in that employment pipeline, can we then use that to build something new but not necessarily replicate what's been done in the past?
1: Excellent point. And and I, I guess then, you know it it comes some of it comes down to explainability of ai right and and ai ai explainability is a big topic because for most people this stuff happens in a black box you know it's it's not transparent as to what's happening or how decisions are being taken yes. so especially when it comes to systems that make decisions that can affect your life so you know your things that qualify you for insurance for medicare for uh deciding whether or not you meet the cut for a job do you think that there is work still needed uh, to regulate or to build frameworks for this that 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 companies and countries and organizations need Mm -hmm. to adopt
2: I think frameworks are extremely important. We have to talk about what we're doing with the data, particularly when it comes to the disability community. You know, me walking up to you on the street and say, give me your social and your height and all of these other things. You you should wanna know what I'm gonna do with that data. And I should be able to explain, as you said, um, in a way that honors your privacy and and attraction Transparent way, and so the responsible framework that Microsoft has um, is is one that we we firmly believe is important when really considering how to deploy the technology, which is is why you see Microsoft um, kind of have to reassess things once they're in the field and they are used differently than how we intended for it to be designed. And so that again goes back to a responsible AI framework because with any technology you design it once and then sometimes it has a life of its own. Um, And so how do you how do you control that, you know, but if you really do kind of put those things in place in the beginning within that responsible framework or responsible AI framework, you can begin to continue to have the conversation. You cannot just develop it and leave it. You have to continue to evaluate and have the conversation of how it's being used after it's deployed
3: well said and i have a quick question to ask you heather and neil as well and antonio i don't know if he wants to comment but and i know we're almost out of time but i i'd had a conversation with you heather i've had a lot of really brilliant conversations with you and one thing that you were g- talking to me about was You know, how can corporations help the community of people with disabilities? Because often when we're business owners and things like that, we don't really even know how to pitch what we're doing to corporations. And so we know that we want the community involved, but what role can a Microsoft and ATOS play to make sure that the disenfranchised communities Understand how to join the conversations and how to have the conversations in a way that they can be heard, and um, and and often we don't think that's the case. But I know that's something that has been very important to you, Heather. So I was just wondering if we could talk about that real briefly before we um, we end.
2: Sure, and I'm glad you're the one asking me the question because you know the answer might surprise everyone else, but I don't think it'll surprise you. And it's amplifying storytelling. And that essentially is what we're doing with the Microsoft AI for Accessibility program we are providing lots of examples where AI can be used for good to solve societal challenges uh, for the disability community. And when corporations like Microsoft and ATOS get behind the disability community talking about the impact of the product, service, technology, what have you, that is a totally different framework than Microsoft telling you that story. You really get the human need of why that technology is needed and you really get the impact. And so it really is simple, which is why I love amplifying other people's stories. Last week, we had um, one of the projects that we're working on uh, with Northwestern and Mental Health America and University of Toronto, where they're looking at democratizing access to mental health solutions through something that's pretty low tech text messaging, but it's backed up by a really fancy AI algorithm that can deliver mental health and behavioral interventions right when you need it based on how you engage with that app. So just to really figure out, okay, what is going to work to continue to engage this person and develop this, this new behavioral pattern and habit. And this is for the benefit of lots of people that are worried of going to a therapist. And so thinking about how we can reach people where they are, but then to hear the impact of the story of Mental Health America talking about how anxiety screenings went up 400% during the depression during the pandemic, and depression screenings went up about 800%. And the fact that, you know, this was the mental health was the number one in growing disability before the pandemic. But those numbers tell you, hey, we got a heat map going on here. Hey, we need some solutions today. Um, and so I love the concept of really thinking about what accessibility has always done. Which is when you solve for one, you extend to many. Um, and I love that about this community. And I love that about the stories that we get to tell with the community using technology.
1: Fantastic. I think that's, I, I, and, and Deborah is not the only believer in storytelling here. Actually, you're, you're in good company. Uh, okay. I think storytelling. <laughs> is immensely powerful. And the way to connect to people is authentic. Um, and I actually need to give my authentic thanks to you for, for being our guest, for being part of our community, for being a great ally, for working in tech. I need to thank my MyClearText for keeping us captioned, uh, Microlink and, and Barclays Access for also supporting us over the years to keep us on air. We're now in our seventh year. 13 plus billion impressions on Twitter and counting. Um, So thank you, Heather. I'm really looking forward to the chat um, on Tuesday night on Twitter or Tuesday lunchtime for you. Um, Thank you. Have a great weekend. Thank you so much. So much gratitude. Thank you all.
3: Thank you, Heather. Thank you.